You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Maybe you've seen on social media uh, some of those summarize a movie in one sentence, right? Summarize a movie in one sentence. So here, here's a few uh, uh, that'll pop up on the screen. So here we've got Thor. And so we've got adopted kids, older brother won't let him hold the hammer. That's basically, that's basically the whole movie is basically what it is. And we have The Shining, a family's first Airbnb experience goes very wrong, right? That would be, that would be true. Lord of the Rings, group spends nine hours returning jewelry. That's, that's it. That's, that's Lord of the Rings. Star Wars, deadbeat dad tries to get his son to take over the family business, right? That's really what he wants to do. He just wants Luke to take over the family business. The Incredibles, a man's midlife crisis threatens family and the whole city, right? That's the whole cartoon movie. So uh, the reason I start that way is we actually get a good summary verse of the entire book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. And here's what it says, verse chapter 20, or chapter 50, verses 20 and 21. The whole book is summarized in this one statement. In fact, I think you could summarize the entire plan of God in this one sentence uttered by Joseph to his brothers as a comfort to them as they doubt the forgiveness of God, they doubt the forgiveness that Joseph's going to give them. Here's what it is. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are to this day. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. That's Joseph speaking to his brothers who are doubting his forgiveness at the end of the book, but that really is a summary of everything. All that has happened in the book of Genesis, God's good plan, God's good intention, even the fall, even the serpent and Satan and the sinfulness of human beings, God is going to turn it for good. He is going to make it work. He's going to keep people alive. He's going to draw people to himself so that even the evil works backwards in order to fulfill the purposes of God. And so the title of our message today is The God Who Turns Evil for Good. The God Who Turns Evil for Good. Based on this verse, this summary verse of the book of Genesis, this theme verse of really the entire plan of God. And as we break down that title for just a moment, we see that the God who turns evil for good. You can go back to the title slide for just a second, Steve. I know it's out of order there. Um, First of all, we have the God. Yes, there is a good, eternal, limitless, personal God. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1, right? evil. Yes, his good world rebelled against him and is under his wrath and destined for destruction. Genesis teaches us that. That is the reality of things. So there is a good, eternal, limitless, personal, judging God. And yes, there is evil in the world that has corrupted everything and is under his wrath and destined for destruction. But he is a God who turns evil for good. God intends to both eradicate and punish sin while also turning every bit of it for good. We read that in Romans chapter 8, that God works all things for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This means that God will conform everything to His character and design. He will turn it for good. He will remake the world, and that's the promise that Genesis holds out and yet leaves uncompleted. We're going to feel a little bit of that, man, we've reached the end of the book, but there's a little bit as we reach the end of the book of going, that's it? Well, yeah, there's still a whole lot of books left. God's not done writing his story. This is really just the beginning. It really is just the genesis of this. But we have this hope that's given to us throughout the book of Genesis that what the serpent, what Satan, what the serpent, what people meant for evil, God will mean for good in order that many people may come to know him 
as they are today. So in our context here, we've had 50 chapters. We're going to complete today 1,533 verses, 20,613 words, 78,069 letters. I counted all of them. Actually, I just Googled it. All of this driving this one point home. God turns evil for good. God turns evil for good. And it's hinted throughout the book. By the end of this series, we're going to have, 40, have, have been through 44 sermons, over 2,400 minutes of sermons you've listened to. That's 40 hours. You've spent a whole work week just in sermons on this book. And this has been the bedrock theme of this whole thing, is that there is a good God who has been sinned against and is going to turn it for good. This good plan of God has been threatened, it has been questioned, it has seemingly been lost at times, it seems like at times it's been abandoned or impossible, but in the end, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. So the context here is Israel and his family is down in Egypt. By God's providence, they have been brought down to Egypt. They've been brought out of the promised land by God's own plan, but God is planning to bring them back. Jacob has died, and we're going to see his funeral procession here in just a moment. And he has just blessed his sons and grandsons, giving shape to the future, giving shape to the plan of God, offering prophetic blessings and direction to the family. He's dying in Egypt with his entire family around him and the promise that he will be buried in the land of Canaan. So we're going to see that promise fulfilled and as an act of faith. And so our text breaks down into four parts today, chapter 50. Now you can go back, Steve. Sorry to go out of order there for you. The God who turns evil for good, four parts today, okay? So we're going to go through each one of these parts. Part one will be an elaborate burial trip for Jacob, first 14 verses. The second, verses 15 through 18, we see an anxious brotherly tension. So some tension, some fear, some anxiety rises up in the brothers. Then in verses 19 through 21, we get our key verse that we've already talked about. Uh, but we get an absolute divine assurance from Joseph. And in its context, it's between he and his brothers, but it has echoes out through the entire Bible. It's really a summary of the whole Bible, as we've discussed. And then in, in the last few verses, chapter 50, verses 22 through 26, an unsatisfying final death as Joseph finally dies, and we see the book of Genesis end with death, which is a little bit discouraging. It started so glorious with God and this beautiful creation and the book then ends with a lot of hopeful promises, but ultimately death seems to win at the end of the book. It seems like that we get this unsatisfying final death that just sort of leaves us hanging and waiting for the sequel. So let's look at, at chapter 50, verses 1 through 14. This will be helpful if you have a copy of God's Word in front of you. An elaborate burial pr procession. So remember, Jacob has made his brothers or his sons promise him to bury him in the land of Canaan. And we just get this remarkable scene for 14 verses of them keeping their promise to bury dad back in the promised land in the cave of Machpelah that Abraham bought. It's the only piece of the promised land that they have their name on at this point. So this is a big deal for him to be buried there and not in some glorious way in Egypt. He wants to be buried where the promise is. And so watch them keep this promise. Verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Remember the previous verse, Jacob died, so Joseph's mourning him here. Verse 2, And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for 70 days. 
And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb, that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me go, let me please go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which, is, which Abraham brought, bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So this is extraordinary. This is an extraordinary honor that is bestowed on Jacob by Joseph, his son, and his brothers, but also by Egypt. Like he goes to Pharaoh and says, and all he does is ask for permission. Like, hey, can my little family go up and spend some time burying dad in this way that would honor him. We have this promise. We have this God that we follow. And Pharaoh not only grants it, but in a sense sends all of the royalty of Egypt to go along and mourn with him, to go on this long road trip to Canaan. And we see that there is this embalming process, 70 days, the entire nation mourns. It's like Jacob is held in state. You know, you've, you've, you've seen that before, right? Where the United States wants to honor a president that's died and they sit in state for a certain while. They sit in the Capitol. And this is what happens, except it's for 70 days. And the royal process for the best of the pharaohs was 72 days. So Jacob is being honored even by this foreign nation in, in this royal way. And there's actually almost a nationwide road trip to another place a burial procession. This would be like, you know, when the, the cops clear the road and you've got like the, the, the hearse and then you've got all of those people with the little flags going from the funeral to the burial place. That's what this is like, except it's hundreds of miles long, this burial procession. And the entire nation of Egypt seems to be engaged in it. It's certainly the royalty. There's chariots and horses and they travel days and days and days to go and bury this man, this foreigner, this in immigrant that has come into their land. And not only that, you see the Canaanites, they notice it, right? Like this is sort of a world-noticing event as the Egyptians come and they honor this, this Jewish man, this nomad, this man who has no place. He owns a little, like, little plot of land in the middle of Canaan, and yet he's honored by the nations. And the Canaanites themselves realize that this is a big deal for this man that is being buried, this father of this small little people, this small little group. And so God is signaling through this death of Jacob, through this procession, that he is God, that this is their land, that this is their place. 
and Egypt and the Canaanites all take notice of just how great this is and how important the promises of God are. Pharaoh grants this expensive request uh, to head to Canaan, to the cave of Machpelah, and this seems to be maybe a mark of authenticity because this book is written by Moses to the people after they've escaped bondage in Egypt. And if Moses was making up this story, he wouldn't speak so favorably of the Egyptians. Like if, you're, if you just escaped oppression and you want to show how God's judgment fell on them, you'd want to make them look bad. But Pharaoh and his people look so good here. They are honoring the people of God, which is actually, I think, a picture of or a, a signal of authenticity that you can trust the book of Genesis because they're speaking actually of what will become their enemies so favorably, right? And so this is just the, the history, this massive crowd of Egyptian and Israelites Only the kids and their stuff are left behind. And it's interesting, if you just sort of trace the route that they take, you would expect them to take a pretty direct route. But they actually seem to, if we can chart this somewhat, it talks about um, Atad and some other couple of, like, and so it's hard to tell exactly which way they went, but it seems like they took the long way around. Like they went through the desert of Sinai and came around the Dead Sea and then came in that way. That's fascinating because that doesn't seem like the shortest route. If you were to Google Maps this thing, there's certainly got to be an interstate that would go faster. But they take the long way, which is fascinating. I don't know why we're not given an explanation, but this seems to prefigure the Exodus. This is the route that they will take 400 years from now to return to the land. And so you almost get this small little picture. You get this little like movie trailer. You get this little appetizer of what's coming the great deliverance that's going to come. And so God is already kind of tracing their footsteps. You're going to go this way, and this is the direction that they go. They go out and around and come in in the way that they're going to come out as a whole nation. They're not coming out yet, but this is sort of a down payment. This is a, 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 an, an appetizer for the deliverance that God will bring later. And it's already signaling to the nations that God intends to bring his people back to this land. So then when you have the conquest of Joseph or uh, of Joshua in the book of Joshua, Man, you have got a long time there, but it has not been unclear. It is not a surprise that God is going to give this land to the Israelites, right? So their resistance against the Israelites coming into the land actually is a a judgment because they should know there's lots of history here. The Canaanites know it. So I think some takeaways from this this section, a bottom line is, is that an elaborate, expensive act of faith in the promise of God and I think what Jacob is doing is by, being, by asking them to bury him in the promised land, to make this long road trip, to do the difficult thing, is that I think he's wanting to signal to the generations that come after him that we belong there, not here. We're sojourners. We're foreigners. And I want you to bury me there because I want your heart to be there. I want your heart to be where the promise is. I don't want you to get too comfortable in Egypt. I want you to come there. I want you to bury me there I'm going to go ahead of you. I'm, in a sense, I'm preparing a place for you, and I want you to be with me where I am. And so I think an elaborate, expensive act of faith and the promise of God to pull Israel forward and to make clear that the plan of God is for them, that their plan is to be here one day. Because over the next few centuries, it's going to be tough to see that. It's going to be tough to see that promise. So the fact that we buried, the fact that Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and I think, I think Rebecca's buried in that tomb as well. And Jacob, the fact that so much of our family, so many of the people that have walked with God have been buried there, is to pull their hearts there. Our treasure is not here. Our treasure is there. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasure is our ancestors and their faith. And it's being buried there to pull them forward. As faithful worship, 
but also as a public witness to the nations that we follow God and his promises. Which I think just a, a sub-application of this is this tells us that funerals and burials matter. They've always mattered to the Christian people. Down through the centuries, Christians have been suspect, actually, of like cremation and just scattering because bodies matter. God's going to resurrect this thing. And so there isn't just a quick disposal that's useless now. No, our bodies are actually part of who we are. And Joseph actually, or Jacob actually, wants his body to preach a message to generations that there's a place that I'm going to be resurrected from. And there's a place planted in the ground, an act of faith. So even how you act with my body, how you position and place my body is an act of faith, a message that's going to be preached to generations that come down through the ages. And so we just see that again and again, that where you're buried really matters. We're going to see that with Joseph too. Joseph's going to preach a message with his dying, decaying body as well, an act of faith as well. And we're going to see two, two things that Jacob and Joseph are doing together to point the people to the promises of God. All right, let's move to verses 15 through 18. An anxious brotherly fear, okay? So they have this long procession, long time. This is a long mourning process. And so they finally return. Life turns, returns back to normal in Egypt. And, uh, and here we get this interesting um, anxious brotherly fear, verses 15 through 18. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of of God your father. Uh, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. This is remarkable. This has been 17 years at least close to two decades since they've been brought down in Egypt and they've received nothing but blessing and forgiveness from Joseph and yet their hearts still have a hard time believing it. They still have a hard time believing it. For two decades, they've lived with these anxious consciences of the things that they've done and they've not been able to really feel the forgiveness that Joseph has extended. He has really forgiven them, but they still, over time, have continued to struggle to grab hold of it, to feel it. And it's interesting because they think, look at the hypothetical. It says it may be that Joseph will hate us. They just are hypothetically worried about something that may happen, right? They're getting themselves so anxious and so fearful over something that's a hypothetical, that goes against all of the evidence of who Joseph has been and what his relationship to them has been like. And it, they believe that maybe it was their father's presence that guaranteed Joseph's forgiveness and favor. That now that dad's gone, he's going to let us have it. Joseph is so conniving and so deeply vengeful that he has just been playing this ruse for 17 years and now he's going to let us have it. Which just goes against everything that they've experienced so far, right? Now, if Joseph were to do that, what would we think of Joseph? We'd go, this man is wicked. To give gestures of forgiveness, only waiting time to then yank the rug out from under them, we would go, that is an evil thing to do right? It is an evil thing to promise and act in such a way that's forgiving, and then when you have the opportunity to switch it on them, right? They still, in their own heart of hearts, want to pay it back in some way. Forgiveness is hard. Receiving grace is very difficult to do. And so they make up this statement. 
So it's motivated out of fear. It's motivated out of a hypothetical fear that maybe Joseph hasn't actually forgiven us. That maybe he's actually going to give us vengeance and that he has just been secretly playing this game and he's going to shred us. He's going to rip us apart. And so they make up something. There's no evidence that their father actually said this. Look at verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph. Hey, your father gave this command before he died. There's no evidence that Jacob said any of this. And Jacob and Joseph had had such a close relationship for 17 years that I'm pretty sure that if Jacob said this, he would have just said it directly to Joseph. This is not the kind of thing. They did not have the kind of relationship that Jacob's like, hey, I know it's kind of tough to talk to Joseph. When I'm dead, hey, let him know that I want you to forgive them. There's no evidence. There's nowhere in Scripture, there's no evidence that Jacob said this to them, nor is there any evidence that Jacob would ever need to say this to Joseph, right? But they're so anxious that they actually are only trusting really in the fact that maybe Joseph has only been this way because dad's around. He wouldn't murder us in front of dad. And so they make what seems to be they make up something. They make up something. Your father gave us this command when he died. Say to us, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of God, of, your fa- of, of the God of your father. And then what's Joseph's response? He weeps. He weeps. Now, at first, if you, if, you, if you don't read further, you would go, well, why is he weeping? Like, that in and of itself doesn't tell us a lot about Joseph's emotional state, right? But we go on that in just a few verses, he's going to comfort and speak kindly to them. So I think he's heartbroken. He's heartbroken that over the last two decades, that despite all of the evidence, they have not yet been able to experience and feel the forgiveness that really is theirs. They possess it, they've just not been able to feel it. And I think he grieves for that, that they're in such a state that they feel like they have to make up for this, that they have to grovel in this way. And they seem to get unnerved by Joseph's weeping, because look at what they do in verse 18. The brothers came and fell down before him, like, oh man, this crying, this weeping that Joseph has might be, yeah, he's, he's, about to, he's about to be done. His brothers also came and fell down before him. Behold, we are your servants. You just hear this desperate fear, right? Joseph weeps out of compassion because he comforts them. It's like when Jesus looks out on the crowds, what does he feel when he looks at the people in all of their sin and struggle and mess? It says that he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Joseph looks at his brothers who have done real evil against him. They admit it. He admits it. There's no doubt. They've committed evil against him. They deserve wrath. And at the same time, what wells up in him is compassion. And I think part of that compassion is that they're being harassed and helpless by their own, they're being harassed by their own consciences not because of reality, but their own consciences. Their own consciences have not yet been healed yet. They are forgiven. They're in no danger before Joseph. But their hearts have not yet been healed. Their consciences still bother them. There's still a legalism in them that they want to pay it back. It's really difficult. Their consciences still don't match the reality yet. And here's what I think we need to know is that sin does leave scars. Sin leaves scars and stains that are not easily removed. And Joseph doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, hey, get it together. He, he reminds them of who God is. We're going to see that in a moment. 
and that God is the guarantee of their forgiveness. And he comforts them. Because I think just like just like scars and wounds and diseases of mental state or emotional state or physical state, we're not always granted healing in this life, and sometimes our consciences take some while to heal. And so assurance and comfort and settledness in the forgiveness and grace of God sometimes takes a long time, and we're not always guaranteed that that's going to be given to us. So I know that there are some in this room that struggle with assurance and struggle with comfort and struggle with God's forgiveness, and just know that you have Bible verses here. You have, and the reality is, is they are forgiven whether they feel it or not, whether they, they are forgiven because of God, not because of Joseph, not because of Joseph's dad, but because of God and what he's doing. He's been doing it for decades and they still are having a hard time feeling it, but that's okay because it's still theirs. They're still the children of God. They're still the children of God, whether they're feeling it in the moment or not. We just get such a sweet thing here. It's both very grievous that they can't quite get themselves to the point where they can really enjoy the forgiveness that they really have with their brother. And I think that's why he's weeping. But also there's like, he doesn't turn on them. Doesn't give them vengeance. Doesn't yell at them. He comforts them. He comforts them in showing them the work and person of God. This healing of conscience can be elusive. Assurance can be elusive. But assurance is not what saves. It is the forgiveness of God that saves. It is the grace of God that saves, and that's an objective reality, not just a felt reality. The brothers were forgiven and safe, whether they felt it or not. Which then brings us to chapter 50, verse 19 and 20, an absolute divine assurance. And this is where we get this beautiful picture of the whole plan of God, right? The whole book of Genesis comes out in this one verse, and it comes out of a place of fear that maybe I'm not forgiven by God, that maybe I really am going to get this wrath from Joseph. Like maybe it's still coming for me and we get the assurance out of a place of pain and doubt, out of a place of struggle and fear, we get these glorious truths applied to these brothers in their immediate context, but also has ripple effects that explains the whole plan of God. It's just amazing how God puts this together, that this is a real human story between brothers, but it is echoing and throbbing and signaling eternal things about our relationship with us and God. It's just marvelous. We get this absolute divine assurance. So look at verses 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. He says it again. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So kind to them. Ruler of Egypt. What does he care what they think or feel, right? He's in charge. It doesn't matter, but he cares about them. He loves them. And he wants them to not just know it sort of intellectually, but feel it down in their hearts and their souls. So he comforts kindness. And look at what he tells them. He says, don't look to dad for your assurance. Your assurance of me treating you kindly was not because of dad. It wasn't his presence that secured this. It's not even my presence that secures this. It's God. And Joseph has been like this all along, right? When he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, what kept him from falling into temptation? Shall I sin against God? It was the fact that he walked with God. I have a relationship with God. When he was in the prison, it said God was with him. And now, you want to know what assures my forgiveness? 
the fact that I walk with God and God secures it, right? So look to God. Look to God as the source of forgiveness for your ability to forgive others. That's what Joseph's doing. The reason I have the ability to forgive you is because I have a God who's forgiven me, right? Like I have, have put the responsibility to get vengeance. That's his now. He has forgiven me. I'm going to forgive you. Jesus had a parable about that, right? The parable of the unforgiving servant. Jesus had a parable about that. If you've received forgiveness, you give it. And so look past me. Your security is not based on Joseph's character. It's based on God's character. I look to God for the ability to forgive. You look to God for the ability to receive forgiveness. It's all God. It's all what God is doing. Let's both look to God, both the forgiver and the forgiven looking to God as the source of that forgiveness. That's fascinating, the word for meant, because we get this, this juxtaposition, this what you meant for evil, God meant for good. In Hebrew, hasab, meant. And the brothers were committing an intentional act of evil. And the same word is used of God. God also, in that evil act, is intending for good. It's the same word. Meaning that when Joseph experienced throwing into the pit, being sold into slavery, that evil that he experienced was an act of the brothers and an act of God at the same time. And we get that age-old tension of God. God's sovereignty and human free will, right? It's the same word. It's not that, hey, that happened and now God's just really good at reclaiming it. No, it's the same word. You meant with intention for this to happen and God meant for this with intention to happen. And that's where we get kind of the, the record scratch in our head going, okay, this evil act was actually God's fingerprints are in there doing it. God doesn't do evil. We know that. But there are other words that he could use to say, no, God reclaimed your evil act and turned it for good. No, actually, what you meant and what God meant, there's two causes to this event. Two causes. God's is superior, yours is down here. Humans create and do real actions, and God, at the same time, superimposes those actions. That's one of the mysteries of the Bible. And we have many mysteries in the Bible. How is God three and one? How is... Jesus, both God and man. And how is it that man can do an evil act and in that same act, God be doing something good? But actually, our whole salvation is built on that. Look at Acts chapter 2. I'll just read it to you. Paul, Peter is preaching a sermon at Pentecost to a bunch of people, and he says this as he's preaching the sermon. Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You committed an evil act, and God, it was God's will to crush him. How does that work out? It's hard to untangle that. It's hard to untangle that. Romans 11 at the end <laughs> wrestles with that same thing. And then Paul sort of hits a ceiling of going, there's just so much that I don't understand. And we just are left in awe of the plan of God. That it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. And it was an evil act. It was meant for good or meant for evil by the brothers. And in the same act, God is working for good. And so we have a God who has his hands on everything. And I think that's oddly comforting. While that creates tensions for us, I would much rather have a God who's involved and working and promising and good than a God who's aloof, just sort of reacting to stimuli. That doesn't give me comfort at all. (laughs) To think that God's just like, oh man, I did not see that coming. But instead a God who goes, no, I'm I'm actually going to weave this all together. 
not being guilty of evil in himself, but yet in every single horrible event, God's involved. God's working in ways that we can't see. Um, you've seen like those knitted things. You look on the back of like, I forget what it's called, but you look on the back and it's a mess, right? And you flip it over and then also it's this beautiful picture. We're living on the messy side of that. If we could see from, what, from God's perspective, we would see that he is weaving even the dark colors, even the sad events, even the horrible things are being weaved into a picture that we won't see until we get to be with him. And that's what Joseph's saying. Joseph, by faith, has now been able to see what his brothers can't see. They can only see the mess. They can only see the evil that they have done. And Joseph is going, don't you realize that the evil you did, God in that same act did so much good? Like, we wouldn't be alive if you didn't do that. (laughs) That's not an excuse to do that. But it is to say, don't doubt that God's at work. Don't think that God has discarded you. Even your evil against me was God's working for good that many people would be kept alive as they are today. It's a great mystery. It's one of the great mysteries of existence is how God does both of those things. How God can turn evil for good. And yet it's at the bedrock of our faith. It's at the heart of the crucifixion. So, bottom line, God promises to providentially bring good to his people and that is the bedrock of our faith. That is the bedrock of our faith. Every terrible, sad thing you've experienced, you can have the hope of Romans that all things work together for good for those that love God and according to his, are called according to his purpose. I don't know how. I, I don't know how. The Bible didn't give us all that. Secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things are for us. And one of the revealed things is that God, some, that people intend things for evil and God intends them for good. And those are, can, and are both true at the same time. That is a revealed thing. How? That's a secret thing. God hasn't given us the ability to see all that yet. So, this absolute divine assurance that we can rest our hearts in this truth, this truth that Joseph has to encourage them with. And so he comforts them and speaks kindly to them and lets them know that their fear is unfounded. It's purely a hypothetical. The fact that I would turn and give you wrath after I've gestured forgiveness all of this time is completely a hypothetical you've made up in your mind. That's not in God's mind. That's not in my mind. And your fear is unfounded. And yet he's still kind to them because their fear is real. Their anxiety is real. So he's kind with them while also reminding them that they have a God who doesn't flip. Imagine if God was like that. Gestures of forgiveness and then like, if that, that would be evil for Joseph to do to his brothers, God won't do that to his people either. And then we get to the final verses, the final five verses of the book of Genesis, an unsatisfying final death. There's a lot of sweetness and hope and prophecy, and yet it's so unsatisfying because the promise doesn't come yet. The people are outside the plan of, or outside the promised land. They're not a great nation yet. All of these things are still left unfinished. The, the seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent, well, actually, they're under <laughs> Pharaoh still, who has a serpent on his head, right? Like, that's actually the headdress, is a serpent, which is not by accident, right? So they're actually still under the serpent at the end of Genesis. They've not yet been delivered, and yet there's so many hopeful things. And so let's just read about Joseph's final death here. So Joseph remained in Egypt, verse 22. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. So we got to see what, what would that be, his great-grandchildren? 
The children also of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. Those are sweet words. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, Surely, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So fast forward from this brotherly account, verse 21. Fast forward 50 or so years to verse 21. That's how long that they're kind of living in this time. We get to Joseph's 110th year. He's on his deathbed. He has some final words to say to his brothers. He gets to see his grandkids, his great-grandkids. It seems like he even adopts them as his own which I think is just a picture of just how intimate and close this family was. Joseph had a lot of sweet years. And then we get this final hopeful prophecy. First, we see that he says, God will visit you. He says it's twice, right? God will visit you, and then just in case you forgot, God will surely visit you. And a promise that God is going to come and get you. He brought you down here to Egypt, but he has not left you. He's going to visit you. And this theme of God coming to visit his people is an important promise throughout the rest of the Bible. We're going to see that fulfilled in Exodus 4 and Exodus 13 when they actually remember this promise. At the Exodus, when Moses comes, they say, God has visited us. And then when they carry Joseph's bones out of Egypt and uh, as part of the Exodus, they do so because they remember this, God has visited us. So the whole plagues of Egypt, all that stuff, all that working through Moses is the short-term fulfillment of God visiting his people. But I want to point to Luke chapter 1 because then you fast forward a whole bunch of years and you get this really fascinating statement made by a man named Zechariah in the temple when Mary and Joseph bring baby Jesus to see him. And uh, I think it's verse 67. Yes. So Zechariah had this promise from God that he would see the consolation of Israel. He would get to see the Messiah before he died. So this visitation that Joseph's talking about is going to be fulfilled in a small way when God comes through Moses and delivers them out of Egypt. But God actually had a bigger, better visitation in mind. And then when Christ is born, 1,400 years later or however long it was, 1,400 years later, this Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit, says this when he sees the infant baby Jesus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him with fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will be before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of the salvation to his people in forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
You, you see the connection between Zechariah's prophecy at seeing the baby Jesus and what Joseph is communicating in the forgiveness of his brothers and, hey, God is going to come to you. He's going to come to you in Moses in the Exodus to lead you out, but he's actually going to come and lead you in a greater Exodus. He's going to come to you to the Egypt of your own sin, and he's going to come and he's going to lead you out personally. And Zechariah goes, this baby's it. This baby's the deliverer. This is God visiting us. And we follow him. We trust in him. So Joseph is pointing forward. God will visit you. God will surely visit you. And he will bring you up to a land, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Joseph, even in his own death, again, bodies matter, funerals preach. He's what I want you to do is I want you to take my bones and I want you, in a sense, to leave them unburied. Dad, we buried in a future hope of where we're going. I want you to keep my bones unburied until you take me out of here and we can go be there. So there's this already and not yet. Our family is already receiving the promises of God by faith. Jacob's there and we're looking forward to that. But I will stay with you. Don't bury me here. Leave me unburied to show that we are not home yet. His own bones are going to preach a message that there's an already and a not yet to the kingdom. There's an already and a not yet to the promises. The promises are yours, and yet we are awaiting sojourning people. So leave me unburied, and I'm going to stay with you. I am witness that God will be with you. So you see the two deaths and how they're both doing two things? It has a little bit of a picture of our salvation, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you and wait because the Holy Spirit will be with you. It's almost like these two bodies, Jacob's body and Joseph's body, picture those two things for the Christian. One day we will be where Christ is. He has gone to prepare a place for us. He's gone to the future land. He's gone to the promised land. And yet we're giving God himself in our midst to take us there, to guide us there, to get us home, right? So we're given this already and this not yet. In this passage, which I think actually we see in our own salvation, that Christ, we're looking forward to the day when we will be with Christ, and in the meantime, we have the Holy Spirit leading us as a, as a down payment, as a guarantee to push us forward. He lives to be 110 years old, which is the most respected age to live to for an Egyptian. So again, he just caps it off. This wonderful life gets capped off in the perfect Egyptian way of dying at 110. It's perfect, honored, glorious. And such a, but such an unsatisfying ending. The last great character of Genesis is dead. The people of God are now essentially without a leader. It's just quiet now for 400 years. There's going to be pharaohs that rise that forget about Joseph. All of a sudden, the Israelite people are going to be seen as a threat and not a blessing, and they're going to be oppressed. And for 400 years, they're going to have nothing but a promise to hang on to. But God has not left them. The fact that they've buried their grandfathers in a promised land and the fact that they still have some bones with them here is an indication that that's where we're headed and we're not there yet. But we have hope. We're not discarding this body and these bones because his bones and body matter and they preach a message to us that our God is coming for us. He's going to resurrect us. He's going to bring us out and he's going to take us home. And so these two funerals preach a message of already and not yet, a hopeful pulling forward and a pushing forward. These bones are pushing and pulling them, the people of God, to where their hearts should be, where their hope should be. And we get this unsatisfactory ending. From Genesis 1, a great God creating all this life, to now a godly man who's dead. 
and what will happen? An uninspiring, unassuming, yet oddly hopeful expectation of God's visitation. And so they wait. And that's how the book ends, with waiting, sojourning, hoping. So a few takeaways. There's some key themes. I'm going to read some larger sections of the New Testament because I want you to see that some of the themes here in Genesis chapter 50 that are just sort of left hanging, where they find their resolution in the New Testament. First of all, God's people have always been sojourners and exiles. You can go all the way back to Genesis. That's, that shouldn't be news to us. God's people have always been sojourners and exiles. And these two deaths prove that, right? They should not be too at home in the world. And Peter, 1 Peter 2, gives us the same instruction. So now we're in the New Testament. Christ has died and rose again. There's now the Holy Spirit that is indwelling his people. There's a new people. There's a new promised land. There's a new Israel. How are they to live? Well, just like the old did. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, among the Egyptians that you're under, right? You're still in Babylon. You're still in Egypt. You haven't yet been delivered. And so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when? On the day of what? Visitation. That sounds like Joseph, right? We're nomads. We're sojourners. And God will come visit us. Christians. We are sojourners, and we need to live faithfully in Egypt, in a world that is not going to respect God, in a world that's going to forget the blessing that God's people are until he visits them. It's the same thing. A Genesis life, a sojourner's exiles waiting on the day of visitation is how Christians live. Number two, God is the author and perfecter of our faith. We saw that. Joseph talked about that, right? He's the source of forgiveness. He's the one that's been working through this whole thing. He will visit you. It's not going to be your own ingenuity that gets you out of Egypt. It's going to be that God's going to come for you. It's not going to be that you're so great or that you're going to work yourself out of this or buy your way out of it. God's going to have to deliver you. God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Let me point to Hebrews chapter 11, which is really just a sermon. And this part of the Hebrew sermon is on Genesis. And let me just read a good chunk of it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he, had, that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and from him, as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would not have had an opportunity. They would have, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Then you skip because it just continues to tell the story of the Old Testament, get to, to Hebrews chapter eleven thirty nine, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, for us Christians, that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these faithful people in the Old Testament who are waiting for our salvation, and then we get to cross the finish line together. We get to finish together. But God's not done saving people yet, and so they're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth until we get to join them. And we're waiting until God is done saving more people, right? That's the plan of God. So, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So the finish line is Christ, and the energy is Christ, and that was true in the Old Testament, that's true for us today. And so, in the meantime, final point, in the meantime, we wait and we struggle with hope in the promises of a faithful and sovereign God. That's what we do. That's what we do. I love what Romans 7 says. Last big section and then we're done. Romans 7, 18 through 24. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right and not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is I keep on doing. This is sort of how Joseph's brothers felt, right? Are we really forgiven? We continue to sin. Now, if I do not do what I want, it is no longer I who, do, who does it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand for delight, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. It's actually at that exact moment of temptation and need and guilt and sin that Jesus brings his greatest promises in. That was true for these brothers. The sweetest words Joseph ever spoke to them came out of a fear and anxiety, right? And so also in the struggle of our own sin, in the weight and struggle of waiting on a faithful God, that's where the sweetest promises prove true. Romans 8, 28 through 39, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might, he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He won't pull the switch on us. If he gave us his Son, he'll give us the rest. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's there, and we're going to him, and he's praying for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're sojourners. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered by the world, right? We're not well respected. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the theme of the whole Bible. It's the picture that we have available in front of us. And so let me ask you, do you have faith like Jacob and Joseph in the visitation of God that he has come? That he's lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again, and has gone ahead of us, but has sent his spirit to those who trust in him. Have you embraced that by faith? Think of Jacob's eulogy. He did everything wrong, but it still worked out because he trusted in God. Joseph's eulogy. He did everything right, but he could put no confidence in that. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God all the way through. Faithfulness of God produced a faith in them. Do you know the God who oversees all and ordains all for good? Do you know that God that Joseph's speaking of? Do you know the Jesus who has gone before us, is pulling us forward and interceding us from heaven? And have you, do you know the spirit that now dwells with us like Joseph's bones, giving us confidence and hope that God is going to finish the good work he began? And ultimately, have you received the forgiveness of your sins and the words of comfort from the better Joseph for your doubts and your fears and your guilt and your conscience? Have you received the words from the better Joseph the comfort and the guarantee of forgiveness of your sins through Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for this last uh, chapter. And while it leaves, us, it leaves us feeling mixed emotions, some of the sweetest promises are in this chapter. Uh, some of the most important truths are in this chapter. And yet we grieve that the story doesn't fix right there. Uh, that 50 chapters and it, it feels like death has won. It feels like all the godly people are gone and, um, and that God's people are just left uh, forgotten. And so, God, we pray that you would help us uh, to see what you would have us see in your word, help us to feel both the glories and a little bit of the disappointments in the book of Genesis. And may it help us to be faithful and realistic about our walk of faith here. God, thank you for... Uh, the fact that you will work all things for good for those who trust in you. Help us to trust in you. Help us to leverage our lives, even as <laughs> Jacob and Joseph leveraged even their deaths and their bodies to preach a message beyond themselves to other people. May we leverage everything in our life to preach a message about a faithful God that can be trusted. And may that message resonate beyond our own lifetimes, down through the generations to our kids, our grandkids, to our neighbors, and to the nations. May we live our lives in such a way that even our bones preach messages about the faithfulness of God. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.